0: Good evening, everyone. Good evening. Welcome to Hillcrest and week number three, I think. Yeah, week number three of our journey through the New City Catechism. Um, Tonight we will explore questions four, five, and six uh, as they all kind of work together under one sort of umbrella. Um, By way of introduction, I would like for us to read Genesis chapter 1 together. And so, um, if you would, I want to invite you to join me in Genesis chapter 1. And when you have your place there, um, if you're able, would you stand in honor of the reading of the word? Genesis one, verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. From the darkness and God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day and God said let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds and it was so and God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind and God saw that it was good then God said let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made And behold it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day this is the word of the Lord thanks be to God father thank you for your word thank you for this remarkable poetic beautiful accounting of the origins of everything that we could ever know on the earth and beyond as we marvel at these words and as they bring us comfort and as they teach us uh, may we sit at your feet this evening may you mold us and shape us direct our minds empower our wills unto obedience and give us grace as we struggle and often fail to obey we love you and we trust you in christ's name amen may be seated A, um, an NFL football coach this week read a particular scripture at his press conference that apparently was shared with the team in the locker room, and I found it to be timely. First Chronicles 29 11 says, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Big statement. All that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. R. Kent Hughes calls this the divine perspective, ready? And this is how he, de- he describes or defines the divine perspective. <clears throat> God is sovereign and does as he pleases and all of life is to be lived for him. God is sovereign and he does as he pleases and all of life is to be lived for him. The divine perspective. And in a chapter in a book uh, valuing godly friendships, Hughes argues that when one person meets another person who shares the divine perspective, there's a kinship, there's a union that's deep and meaningful. God is sovereign and he does as he pleases and all of life is to be lived for him. The idea is summarized by Jonathan, the son of Saul, David's friend in 1 Samuel 14, 6, where Jonathan simply says, nothing can hinder the Lord, which I love. Jonathan is debating with his armor bearer about whether he and his sidekick, it was like uh, Chuck Norris and his buddy on Walker, Texas Ranger, you know, uh, why why, should they go up to this Philistine garrison with somewhere between 20 and 30 armed soldiers in it? And should we attack this group, be outnumbered 15 to one? And Jonathan says, let's go up and let's just see what the Lord will do. For nothing can hinder him if he wants to save by many or by few. Nothing can hinder him. Why? Because God is sovereign, and he does as he pleases, and all of life should be lived for him, or for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. It is to this idea that our attention turns this week. I've summarized questions four, five, and six of the New City Catechism under the simple heading, God's purpose in creation, God's purpose in creation. The three questions in the New City Catechism that that come next center around this foundational idea. Question number four, how and why did God create us? Uh, Pate, how and why did God create us? Go. Yeah, we have, we did question four. It's all right not your fault. I shouldn't put you on the spot like that. I was was just, I thought he would do it. (laughs) All right, I'm going to start it and you continue. The answer is God created us male and female. Uh Uh-huh. That's all right. That's great. See, that's good, right? God created us male and female in his own image to know him, love him, live with him and glorify him. And then the last bit of the answer says, and it is right that we who were created by him should live to his glory. The next two questions basically piggyback off this idea. What else did God create? Well, God created all things by his powerful word and all his creation was very good everything flourished under his loving rule. And so then comes the last natural question under this concept, how, question number six, how can we glorify God? If the answer to question number four is that God created male and female in his own image to know him, love him, live with him, and glorify him, the next natural question, of course, is well, how do we glorify him? And the answer comes in the catechesis. We glorify God by enjoying Him, loving Him, trusting Him, and obeying His will, commands, and law. Or as the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, how do we glorify God? Or what rule has God given that should direct our glorifying of Him? And the answer is, He's given to us His Word. He's given us His Word as a guide to glorify him. Well, uh, let's explore these three together. Question number four, if you're taking notes, we'll consider this point number one. How and why did God create us? And the answer comes in verse 27 of our text from Genesis chapter one. God blessed them Excuse me, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. As humans, we are naturally curious creatures. Why am I here? Where did I come from? What is right and wrong? Or as Pilate asked Jesus, What is truth? What is real? How can I even know these things? 17th century French philosopher, René Descartes, famously said, I think, who knows the rest? See, it's a smart crowd. I think therefore I am, except for he said it in French. So when he said it originally, it was like, right? Yes, (laughs) croissant. This was to be the the foundation of Descartes' philosophical method. If I can doubt even my own existence, the doubt itself is proof of my existence. (laughs) Right? The mind is itself a proof of conscious thought. And thereby existence itself I think therefore I am what is this but an example of mankind's curiosity capacity for deep thinking and specifically our natural tendency to live beyond mere animalistic existence As a result, these are the questions that all of us, to some degree, contemplate. Humans are naturally curious creatures. The catechesis, insofar as it is consistent with the teaching of the scriptures, helps us to answer these questions. Why am I here? What is truth? What is real? What is right? What is wrong? Can these things be known? The catechesis comes, if you will, in like a superhero, swinging into those naturally curious, high-minded, or deep-thinking thoughts with solid answers. And so things like this, where did we come from? Well, God created us. And in fact, he created them male and female, The answers, or I should say this answer um, challenges the notions of macroevolution. It challenges the notions of transgenderism. And it challenges the notions that the culture claims regarding the morality of homosexuality. This simple statement that God created us, male and female, undermines the very notion that gender is a fluid and cultural construct. If God has made us male and female by design, then no altering or violating of that created order can be endorsed by Scripture. If God has created us, then it's only reasonable that we view him with reverence and awe. The ancient Greeks paid homage to the god or the titan, specifically Prometheus. This is the god who they suppose gave to humans the gifts of fire, reason, art, and even life itself. One... Uh, Legend says Prometheus formed the first humans out of clay. Now, as a consequence for stealing fire from Zeus and giving it to his beloved humans, Prometheus was chained to a mountain where an eagle would eat his liver every day. But because he was immortal, the liver would regrow overnight overnight only to have this eagle torturously devour his liver again the next day and so the greeks honored prometheus as a suffering servant of sorts they made sacrifices to honor his sacrifice for what he gave to humanity that's some interesting phraseology isn't it christian (laughs) Now, interestingly enough, the earliest notions of this sacrificial creator God can be dated to about the same time as Isaiah's prophecies regarding the suffering servant who is the incarnate God who was to come. It's a strange parallel, no? Now, why would such a legend grow among the ancient greek thinkers where they think i know what i bet there's this god who is chained to a mountain who created us and gave us fire and gave us the ability to reason and the love of art that's it obviously anybody know you know come on anybody who's reasonable would agree that this guy's probably chained to a mountain somewhere and so you do some research and you say okay were the Greeks interested in freeing this god well no apparently you know one of his sidekick greek god buddies came and and set him free Well, are you curious to find him? No, they're not interested in looking for him or finding him. They simply believe that for a season, he was chained to a mountain and an eagle ate his immortal liver every day. And we thank him for his gifts. Why would such a legend grow among the ancient Greek thinkers? Well, it comes back to this simple statement, humans are curious creatures we are curious about our origins we are curious about life's purpose and in lieu of the truth we will just about believe anything and yet in the end god cannot be mocked for even in these attempts to disregard true revelation for a substitute the lie betrays mankind's curiosity to know and honor His creator, which is an impulse written into the heart of man by God himself, according to the preacher in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. So God created us in his image. This statement tells us something about God as is seen in man. Creativity, emotion, reason, these in us are reflections of God. Creativity, emotion, and reason. I love the way that the guys at the Bible Project talk about God's commissioning of Adam and Eve to to manage the garden. And essentially what was being told was create. As I have created, you create. Now, obviously, you are not the all-powerful God of all creation, so you won't capital C create, but you can reflect my image as you little c create in the garden. So you want to, like, plant some stuff in a row to make a hedge? You want to build a bench? You want to make a, an area with flowers? You want to put purples and pinks and yellows and places together? Create, Right? I love that picture, because you see it, you see it in children. You don't tell children when they're two and three years old now. You were created in the image of God and God created everything, so I want you to take these colors and I want you to draw a picture that represents your philosophical understanding that God is the creator and as you bear his image, you are to create, but you won't create capital C, you'll create little c, so you have the raw materials, you can manipulate them, you can't create them out of nothing, all right? Deal? And they're like, you know what I mean? No, they're just doing what? They're just bearing God's image as they create, right? So he created us, male and female. He created us in his image. And he created us for a purpose. Why am I here? What is my purpose? And the answer comes to know him, to love him, to live with him, and to glorify him. This statement is the answer to all of our curiosity. There are the larger questions about purpose, and then there are the more elementary questions faced by every young person as they're growing and developing. What should I do with my life, right? Who should I marry? Should I marry this person or that person? Should I get married at all? Where should I go to college? Should I go to college at all, you know? Each of these, if you will, deep questions, because they're not like, what should I have for lunch? They're bigger than that. So each of these deep questions finds a tension resolving answer in the simple statement. How and why has God created us? Well, God created us male and female in his own image to know him, to love him, to live with him, and to glorify him. Oh. Does this job enable or hinder knowing God, living with God, loving God, and bringing glory to God? Will this relationship help or hinder these things? Does this activity aid in loving and glorifying God or does it hinder it? Should I go? Should I eat? Should I watch? Should I pursue? Know him, love him, live with Him, glorify Him. Does it or doesn't it? There quite literally is not a human decision that cannot be sifted through this, if you will, theological strainer. So, we are curious creatures. The catechism comes in and helps us answer these questions. And then finally on this I would say there is a a simple phrase purpose determines priority purpose determines priority god created us male and female in his image to know him love him live with him and glorify him and or you might say therefore uh, it stands to reason that we who were created by god should live for his glory if this was the purpose for our creation, it is perfectly reasonable, then, to make these priorities. Purpose determines priority. Uh, time is short. Life is short when compared to eternity. Raising children certainly helps you see this. You know, First of all, you watch your children grow up. And when when you're young, when you're three and five and seven, ten, you know, uh, you think you'll never get to the next whatever, right? The next birthday, the next time for Christmas presents. Uh, As you get older, when your braces are going to finally be taken off, uh, when you're going to finally get your driver's license, and the days and the weeks and the months seem to drag on, right? So... Watching a a young person live through that really helps you as a mom and dad to remember it's easy to have a skewed sense of time. Furthermore, raising children is like the lyrics to a song called Stop This Train. The writer wants the wheels on the train of time to stop turning so fast. He says, I want to get off and go home again. Right? At one point he says, I'm only good at being young, (laughs) which I love. 22, 22 was awesome. No responsibility, was making decent money, living in Southern California with my three best buddies. You know what I mean? We're going to concerts in Hollywood. We're going to Disneyland at night to watch fireworks because it was dirt cheap to own a pass. 22, you know what I mean? I want to get off and go home again, 22. Life was, I had no idea how good life was. All right, that sounds like I don't, <laughs> sounds like I hate like having children and everything. No, just, but you know what I mean? We all have those years where we kinda of think, man, that was just easy, you know? I wanna get off. I'm only good at being young. I'm not good at having responsibility and people who are watching me and listening to me and being an example to them. I wanna get off the train. Truly life is short, especially when compared to eternity. What is eternity? Well, after the judgment, with the new heavens and the new earth, we continue to exist in the eternal state forever, either in perfect glory with God or in eternal judgment. So what you imagine, if you want to think about eternity, is something like this. After the judgment, a hundred years pass. That's a long lifetime, you know, on the earth. And then a thousand years pass, ten long lifetimes. And then a hundred thousand years pass. And then a million years pass. And then a trillion years pass. And this is the statement. We are then no closer to the end than when we first began. Right? That's, that's amazing grace, isn't it? When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing your praise than when we first begun. We're no closer to the end after a trillion years than we were at the very beginning. Now when you think about that for a moment, Your, if you're lucky, 70 or 80 years on earth appear, rightly, to be incredibly short and incomparably small. It's not even a comparison. We must, therefore, be very clear as to what our purpose in life is, because there's no time to waste. It is the height of foolishness to live for this life rather than for eternity. So how and why did God create us? The way we answer this question impacts everything, here and now and for eternity. Well, as I said, the next two questions are related. If you're taking notes, we'll consider point number two to be question number five. What else did God create? Well, what else did God create? He created us male and female in his own image to know him, love him, live with him, and glorify him. What else did he create? Well, Genesis 131, God saw everything he made, and behold, it was all very good. And there was evening and morning, and that was the sixth day. God created all things, this is the answer, by his powerful word, and all his creation was very good. I love the way the catechism summarizes that, and everything flourished under his loving rule. Everything flourished under his loving rule. Ava and I uh, did a little garden for the first time this year at our house, a little vegetable garden. And we asked questions, and she did research and YouTube videos, and I bought the dirt and mixed up the compost and asked her this, and she put the stuff in the ba ba da ba ba da ba, and we got like um, a handful of peppers that are so spicy that not even I can eat them, and way more cucumbers than we would ever eat in a single year, and enough tomatoes to just you know make sauce for our family for the next 18 years for pizza and nothing else, everything else was pretty much just like, you know, you know just, just, I don't know what happened to the carrots, there was lettuce that, it was like, oh, lettuce, <laughs> that's the worst lettuce I've ever eaten in my life. How could something be so bitter and disgusting? Case in point, everything did not flourish under our loving care. But when God created the earth, everything flourished under his rule. I love the answer to the question. He is the creator and the sustainer of everyone and everything. And when we look at the brokenness in the world around us, we might be tempted to blame God for his broken creation. You created it and look at the evil, look at the wars, look at the atrocities happening just in the Middle East today. But the catechism answers help us to dissuade that kind of thinking. What God created was very good, it was flourishing. This revelation, according to Romans chapter one, condemns the wicked who deny him. But the faithful, this is how Calvin puts it, the faithful see sparks of his glory glittering in every created thing. The world, he goes on to say, was no doubt made that it might be the theater of the divine glory. Sparks of His glory glittering in every created thing. Yeah, it was good. It was flourishing under His rule and of course we understand and know that it was sin uh, that has invaded and diseased and infected it, all which we will come to in the weeks to come. But God created everything by His powerful Word and it was good. Therefore, it is right that we who were created by God that we should live to his glory. JC Ryle says it like this, the glory of God is the first thing that God's children should desire. It is the one, excuse me, it is the object of one of our Lord's own prayers. Father, glorify thy name. It is the purpose for which the world was created. It is the end for which the saints are called and converted. It is the chief thing we should seek, that God in all things may be glorified, 1 Peter 4.11. What is the chief aim of man? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now, the skeptic, the hard-hearted, the confused, the 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 deceived respond to that type of thinking and say, well, that's awfully egotistical of God, isn't it? I will create you, and then I will tell you, you shall live for my glory. Glorify me, you know? Like, man, guy's on a power trip, isn't he? Well, well, First of all, to, of course, think that way is to impugn the character of God, but the skeptic, the skeptic doesn't understand the danger of that. What we might respond to that line of thinking with is offering the only suitable alternative. Well, if all of creation isn't geared to bring glory to the God who made it, what's the alternative? And the only alternative is me, not God is at the center of the universe. For my comfort, my pleasure, and my glory do I live, breathe, toil, and exist. Every other system will eventually come down to that. It is the only viable alternative. Dennis Kinlaw says this, listen carefully because this is phenomenal. Satan disguises submission to himself under the ruse of personal autonomy. He never asks us to become his servants. Never once did the serpent say to Eve, I want to be your master. No. The shift in commitment is never from Christ to evil. It is always from Christ to self. And instead of God's will, self-interest now rules, and what I want reigns. And that is the essence of sin. Yeah. The Bible simply says that God is at the center of everything. He is the originator. He is the one for whom all things were created To bring him glory, including our own reason, intellect, and our companionship. For we were created to be in fellowship, in friendship with him. To live this way in the alternative reality is to miss the bullseye, it's to miss the target altogether. Why, Why am I here? What is my purpose? And the scriptures and the created order and everything that is beautiful and good and right in the world is like this giant bullseye pointing to God. Why am I here? And all of reason and all of theology and all of the inspired scriptures and all of that which is discernibly true, good, right, objective, verifiable points to God at the center of the bullseye. And as Christians, we can draw our arrow and point it right at the Lord and say, that's the purpose of my life. But the alternative is to literally just, just miss the entire target altogether. Well, that brings us to question number three. How can we glorify God? It's it's a good and natural follow up. The way that the Westminster Catechism says, "What rule has God given us that we should glorify Him?" Like what? Okay, you've maybe I'm like I've I've been beaten into submission. Okay, the chief aim of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Okay, I, I give, Uncle, you know. But then comes the next natural question: Well, how do I do that? I'm willing, but what does that look like? Um. And uh, and that is where Deuteronomy um, eleven, uh, chapter eleven, verse one, uh, helps us. It simply says this: You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep His charge, His statutes. His rules and his commandments always. This, after chapter 11, talks about how um, God, it was the Lord who um, gave Abraham a son miraculously, late, far too late in his life. And it's the Lord who made that one son of promise into the 76 or 75 who would go down to Egypt during a famine. And it's the Lord who prospered you for 400 years in Egypt and took that 75 and made you into a nation of millions. And it was the Lord who then by a strong hand pulled you out of Egypt with great signs subduing your enemy. And it was the Lord who gave to you the water in the desert and the, the manna on the ground to nourish you. And it was the Lord who kept your sandals from wearing out as you wandered in the wilderness as a result of your own faithlessness for 40 years. It was the Lord who did all of this for you. And that last line, last verse of chapter 10 Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. You shall therefore love the Lord your God, (laughs) right? It was the Lord who made you. You wouldn't be a nation if it weren't for him and the refrain echoes in the future. Because the Lord has sustained your life, you live and breathe, right? Because the Lord has kept disease from you, you still have breath today. Uh, Because the Lord has blessed you, you have children. You weren't drafted into the military, you weren't killed in a car accident, you haven't died yet of cancer. Therefore, right? Therefore, you should love the Lord and keep his charge, keep his statutes, keep his rules. Keep his commandments. In a way, the, the biblical authors are saying, it's unthinkable to respond to God's gracious creation and sustaining of your life with anything less than absolute, wholehearted, full, fervent obedience to his commands. And that's, that makes sense. So how do we glorify God? Well, obey him. Let's see if I can quickly run through this. Can we add to God's glory? Is bringing glory to God adding to his glory? Can we do anything that makes God more glorious than he already is? And the answer is no. There is a phrase, it's, it's God's essential glory. That is, he is infinite in his glorious nature. We cannot, by our lives, add to or detract from his essential glory to glorify something then is to not make it more than it is to glorify something is to if you will declare to draw attention to and so as we glorify God he doesn't change but something changes in us and something changes around us in us and around us to honor, please, and praise God has a metaphysical, supernatural reaction in us. As we think of him, which is the root word for the word glorify that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that famous verse, which I'll quote in a moment. As we think of him and declare his truth in what we do, we aren't making something new, we are merely acknowledging the reality of God as he is revealed to us. They're speaking of that which is. We can think of it like a signpost. As we obey 1 Corinthians ten thirty one, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, we're acting like signposts, pointing the eyes of our neighbors to the character and unchangeable truths about God. Which brings us back to the previous statement, purpose determines priorities. Will this particular use of my time point to God, will it point to me, or will it point to the devil? Will this use of my money point to God, to me, or to the devil? Will this pursuit serve to extol God's virtues, bring him praise, and honor his reputation in the world around me? and through me. Romans 8, for if we live, we live to the Lord. John 15, 15, no longer do I call you servants for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends. Revelation 21, three through four, behold the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. If we live, we live to the Lord as friends and at the climax of his scripture, and at the climax of his revelation of himself, after all that has been accomplished in space and time, and in human created history, the great declaration at the end of it all is behold, I will dwell with my creation, and my creation will dwell with me. No longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. to know him, love him, live with him, and glorify him. Well, we'll go ahead and call it there. Father, thank you for your kindness to us, your revelation of yourself and your word. Thank you for preserving the word and for affording to us the time and the minds to explore these concepts together uh, as you have revealed yourself in the scriptures and then as you have directed and inspired um, theologians in the past to organize these thoughts and organize these scriptures so that we might systematically understand who you are, why we're here and how we live unto your glory. Help us to retain and put into practice that which we have learned. For Christ's sake and in his name we pray. Amen.